Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read verses 12 and 13 today. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. There it says, For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, that you might be merciful to us. Lord, knowing that apart from you, we have nothing good at all. Lord, only that which is sinful and loathsome to your sight. Lord, we can do nothing. Lord, in order to please you or to lift ourselves to you. Lord, unless you are merciful to us. And so, Lord, today we beg and we plead, Lord, for you to richly pour out your blessings upon your people. Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, that you would speak to us by your word. And that, Lord, you would make it effective in our life. Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Lord, knowing that your word is true. Lord, teach us today and we pray that you would grant to us, Lord, all those things that are necessary for our salvation. Lord, that we might be faithful and true to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we begin our exposition of this passage last week where the apostle is reinforcing his general exhortation by bringing to mind the reality of future judgment. All right, we remember that the context of the book of Hebrews is a church that is facing harsh trials. They are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And one of the temptations that they are facing is the temptation to turn away from Christ, to forsake Christ, to compromise so that they can avoid suffering. And so the apostle is exhorting them to diligence, to perseverance, to careful watchfulness over their soul so that none of them will fail to enter into God's rest found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the general exhortation of the book of Hebrews, a call to faithfulness. And this exhortation is strengthened by many uh, various proofs. And one of those is the reminder of the coming day of judgment. He said that the word of God is living and active. We took the word of God to be a direct reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been appointed by God the Father to judge the world in righteousness. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and each man will be judged according to what he has done in this present life. Those who believe in Christ for salvation, who enter into rest in him, who maintain their hope and their confidence firm until the end, they will not be disappointed. They will have eternal life. But to those who have an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God, those who fail to enter into his rest, those who are not diligent to enter into that rest, but who fall by following the same example of disobedience, they will have eternal death and punishment. And we must have this view of the day of judgment, that we will stand before the living word of God, the divine son of God, and we will answer to Jesus Christ. If we turn away from him, if we abandon our faith, if we are false professors or apostates, we will not escape the wrath of God, for he is the living and active word of God. He is not a dead, lifeless idol. He is the living God. He is not a passive, uninterested God, but the one who is active in his church, who has the power to judge, the power to save or to destroy. Christ was described as being sharper than a two-edged sword, that he cuts deeply into the hearts of men. He exposes, he convicts of sin, he pronounces judgments upon the sins of men. And he is able to do this perfectly, with perfect righteousness, because he does not judge merely by what his eye sees or what his ear hears. But he's able to divide and to penetrate even into the deepest recesses of the human heart able to divide between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, meaning that he is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of men. He and he alone has access to all the information necessary to make righteous judgment, 
And when he takes up his throne of judgment, he will perfectly separate men as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. No sheep will be condemned and no goat will ever escape, but all will receive their just reward according to the judgment of Christ. And this judgment is unavoidable. It is impossible for a man to be exempt from the day of judgment. And the only way that we can stand approved is by being found in Christ. So if Christ is the only refuge by which sinners can safely pass through the judgment of God, then why would we ever turn our back on Christ? Why would we ever forsake him? We should cling closely to Christ as if our life depends on it. Because in reality, it does. Our eternal life depends on Jesus Christ. So we must hold fast, cling to Christ with all of our might. So let's pick up today in Romans, or Romans, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read 12 and 13 again, but our focus today will be verse 13. There it says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Here again, we see that Jesus is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is how meticulous he is in his judgment. All of our lives are an open book before Christ. And all of our lives are to be lived in obedience to God. Our actions, our words, our thoughts, our motives, our desires, our intentions. Right? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. The law of God requires this all-encompassing obedience, a love for God that captures our entire being. And Jesus has access to the inner workings of mankind. Even the thoughts and intentions are laid open and bare to him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. There the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When Samuel was judging the sons of Jesse, he was able to judge only by what he saw, only by the outward appearance of these sons. But the Lord was able to discern deeper into the men. He was able to come to a true and accurate understanding based upon the heart. And it was based upon this knowledge that David was accepted in the sight of God while the brothers were rejected. And Christ has this ability with all men. He is able to see into the hearts of men. Then how can anyone hide from him? How can anyone commit sin against him and escape? It does not matter where a man goes, where he hides, how deep the darkness is that covers him, right? It doesn't matter how distant to a land that he flees. All men are open and laid bare before Christ. They are open to the Lord. We cannot hide from his gaze, for his eyes are described as being like a flame of fire. And this is why In verse 13, the apostle says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from the sight of Christ. There is no place that any man can go and hide from his gaze. Where we can go and Christ is not able to see who we are and what it is that we are doing and saying. Not even the deepest recesses of the heart or mind Can a man hide from the Lord? Even these are open and laid bare before him. Every creature is exposed to Christ, whether angels or demons or men, whether those men are true and sincere believers, whether they are false believers, whether they are apostates, whether they are atheists, whether they are rich or poor, king or commoner, young or old, male or female. It does not matter. All creatures are open and visible to the sight of Christ, and no one is able to hide from his gaze, but rather everything is open and bare to him. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 
teaches this, that there's no place where we can hide from Christ, from his eyes and from his sight. And it is folly to think that we can. Psalm 139, verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Where can I go, he says, from your presence? And there is nowhere, he says, that I can go from your presence. Even the darkness, he says, is as light to you. Darkness and light are both the same to you. And this is because no creature is hidden from his sight. There is no island, no dark area of the world, even the farthest reaches of outer space, we could not go and be concealed from the eyes of Christ. No place that he cannot penetrate into. No matter how distant it is, Christ is there. And yet, men are often like little children towards their parents, sneaking about, trying to do things, getting into mischief, trying to get away with things that they know that they shouldn't do. This is what we all have done in our childhood. We think, and many times we're able to escape the notice of our parents. We're able to get the cookie or get the piece of candy that we know that we're not supposed to get. And we are able to eliminate all of the evidence. And this remains hidden from their sight. And people believe that they can do this to God. Many men will confess, at least theologically or doctrinally, that they believe in the omniscience of God. But practically speaking, they live as if this doctrine, this truth, is not real. They do not have true faith in the omniscience of Christ, but they believe that they are able to get away just as they did with their parents, so they are able to do with the Lord. That they can commit their sins in deep, dark places, and God will not see, and God will not hold them accountable, and God will not take notice of what they do. But this is foolishness for us to think and believe that we can hide from the face of the one with whom we have to do because no creature is hidden from the sight of Christ. Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah 29 verses 13 to 16 show the foolishness of men thinking that they are able to escape and hide from God. Isaiah 29:13. Notice as well that this is speaking not of an atheist, not of an idol worshiper, but of false professors, false worshipers of God. Isaiah 29:13, then the Lord said, "Because this people draw near with their words, and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote." Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in dark places. And they say, Who sees us, and who knows? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. When men do this, believe that they can hide their plans from God. They believe that they know everything that God is doing, but God does not know everything that they are doing. And this is turning everything upside down. This is the creature exerting his 
superiority over his creator. How can this be? Right, this is the same as we read last week from the psalm. How can it be that God, who created our eyes, is not able to see us? How can it be that God, who gave us ears by which we are able to hear, he can't hear us? Right, if he's the creator of our eyes, then of course he can see us. He sees all things. Yet these false professors, these hypocritical worshipers of God, who give an outward show, an outward pretense of faithfulness to God, but their heart is far from the Lord. But they deceive themselves into thinking that God can't see their hearts, that they can hide in their hearts their plans from the Lord, that they can commit their hypocrisy in dark places in the heart, and God will not see, and God will not know. And these are the ones who will protest on the day of judgment, who will say, Lord, open up to us. And, he, and they will say to him, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And yet what will Jesus reply to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you evildoers. They believed that their outward show was sufficient. Right, because our hypocrisy can trick the eyes of men. They believe that they can trick the eyes of God. But God sees the heart, and he knows what is going on in there. And nothing is hidden from his sight, but he will judge with perfect righteousness. No creature hidden from him, but every creature continually under his view. Not only their actions, not only their words, but even the thoughts and intentions of their heart. Next, notice in verse 13. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. Here again, all things, all things of all creatures, both their seen actions, both their heard audible words, but also the internal secret things of the heart. All of it is open and laid bare to his eyes. Here the illusion is to the sacrificial animal. When the priest sacrifices the animal, he opens it up, right? When the hunter skins the wild beast that he's killed, he opens it up, he lays bare, that which is on the inside is laid open and becomes visible to the outside world, right? When the animal is killed, it is flayed so that the skin is removed and what is on the inside becomes seen and visible to the outside world, right? There are those aspects of the creature that are naturally hidden, that are unseen from the eyes of men, the internal organs, the joints, the marrow, the sinew, right? The muscle, all of these things lie hidden under the skin of the animal. But when the animal is open and laid bare, all of these internal aspects become visible. They become plain. They are open. They are there laid bare. And as it is with the animal, so it is with the man. We are open and laid bare before Christ. His eyes see those things that are hidden from the eyes of men. Men can judge only by what his eye sees, only by what his ear hears. But Christ is able to judge not only by what he sees outwardly and not only by what he hears audibly, but he's able to judge the very secret things of the heart. The thoughts and intentions of the heart are open and laid bare before him, and he can judge with perfect precision and perfect righteousness. Only he knows what is in man. Only he can make this perfect distinction among men. It says in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, speaking of Christ, it says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him. Now, who is the hymn that we are speaking of? Well, we've already determined in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the divine word of God. But here, at the end of verse 13, he adds a reminder that this is the one with whom we have to do. 
All right, notice there. It is him with whom we have to do. Jesus Christ is the one with whom we have to do. Meaning, he is the one that we will answer to on the day of judgment. He is our judge, and we must give an accounting to him on his day, on his day of judgment. We answer to Christ, and Christ is the one who is the, has this intimate knowledge of our hearts. The one that we will stand before and be judged by is the very one who knows our hearts and that everything is laid open and bare before him, and nothing is hidden from his sight. This should produce in us the fear of God. The omniscience of Christ combined with the judgment seat of Christ. These two twin doctrines in the Bible together are great incentives for faithfulness, for perseverance, for endurance, for us to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Right? If Jesus was omniscient, but he was not our judge, then we would have no reason to fear his omniscience. For though he had such intimate knowledge of our hearts, we wouldn't have to answer to him. It wouldn't matter because we wouldn't have to give an accounting to him. He would have no authority over us either to save us or to destroy us. If Jesus was our judge but not omniscient, then we would not fear him because we could hide things from him. We could make excuses to him. We could try to reason and get out of our sin before him. But when you combine these two, the omniscience of Christ with the judgment of Christ, then all things are open to him, and he is the one with whom we have to do. And that ought to produce in us the fear of the Lord. The fear of Christ always preparing our hearts for the great day of judgment, so that we live each day in light of the coming judgment of Christ. This is the wisdom found in the Word of God. God's wisdom found in the Holy Scriptures is the wisdom that makes a man wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is a wisdom that teaches a man how to be prepared to stand before Christ on the day of judgment. Everything in the Bible is preparing us for the day of judgment. It is all there for that purpose, so that we will be prepared to stand before Christ and answer him on that day. Isn't this true of our very lives? Isn't all of our lives hurtling toward the day of judgment? It's all coming and moving toward that direction. This very world will be brought to its end on the day of judgment. Each man's eternal destiny will be fixed by Christ on the day of judgment. And what will be true of us for all eternity? What our portion will be in the life to come? either eternal life with God or eternal death in the lake of fire, that will be determined based upon this present life. Everything that we do now in this present life and how we prepare ourselves for the life to come, all of that will be brought to light on the day of judgment. And then our eternal destiny will be fixed. And the Bible is given to men to teach them how to be prepared for that day. How it is that a man can be approved by God on the day of judgment. Not on the basis of his own works, but on the basis of Christ. By getting an interest in Christ, by having his righteousness imputed to us by faith and not by works. This is what the Bible is teaching us so that we can stand approved on the day of judgment. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 teaches us that the wisdom of God is for our benefit. For our benefit. Proverbs 8, 1 to 14. Proverbs 8, verse 1 says, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, 
and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge in in discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. There it says, wisdom calls out to whom? To men, he says. I'm calling to you. My voice, he says, is for the sons of men. The wisdom of God found in the word of God is for us, for our benefit, for our instruction. The Bible is not for God's benefit because God already possesses all of this knowledge. He already has all of this wisdom and all of this understanding. Yes, the Bible manifests and reveals the glory of God, but it is not increasing his glory. It is not adding to his wisdom because God is the possessor of it. The wisdom in the Bible comes, it flows from God. And so for who is it? It is for us. It is for our benefit to prepare men for the life to come. We all have been summoned to the highest court in the universe. King Jesus, the righteous judge, has ordered each and every one of us to appear before his bar of judgment. And it is absolutely certain that every person in this room today and every person on this globe today and every person who has ever existed from Adam to the end of the world, every single man, woman, and child will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The only thing uncertain about this is the day or the hour, is when we will stand before him. It will either be as a result of our death or a result of the second coming of Christ. And do we know the day of our death? No, none of us know the day of our death. And do any of us know the day of the second coming of Christ? None of us know that day either. But we know we're all going to die or Jesus is going to return. And after we die, we face judgment. And if Jesus returns, we face judgment. So however our life in this present world comes to an end, the next event for us after this life comes to an end is what? It is the day of judgment. It is the judgment seat of Christ. It says in Hebrews 9.27, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. We die, and then after that comes judgment. Or those who are alive, when Christ returns, what will he do whenever he returns? Matthew 25. We studied this just this past Wednesday. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So whether it be death or whether it be the return of Christ, each man's present existence will come to an end. This temporary life will pass away and we will enter into the life to come. And when we do, we will face the judgment seat of Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So all of us have an appointment with Christ. It is fixed and it is certain. The very day is known by God. Perhaps it is today. Maybe it is tomorrow. Maybe it's next year. Maybe we live for another 40 or 50 or 60 years or even longer in this present life. But we can rest assured, whether it is today, tomorrow, or a hundred years from now, every single one of us 
will stand before Christ. And we do not need to know the exact day. All we need to know is the certainty, the reality of the coming day of judgment. And as long as that day is delayed, as long as we have life in us, as long as we have breath in our lungs and blood flowing through our veins, it is time for us to prepare ourselves for that great and terrifying day. Now is the day to prepare our defense for the day of judgment. Just like when the judge in this present world sets the date for the trial. That is when the defense needs to prepare their case. From the time that he announces it until the time that the day arrives, that is the time to prepare your case. It's not time to prepare your case when you stand before the judge. You have to do that work. You have to make that preparation before you stand before the judge. And this is how it is for us with the day of judgment. Now is the time to be prepared to stand before Christ. And what is the only defense that will be acceptable on that day? Can a man present as his defense, as the reason and basis for why God should accept him, why God should approve of him, why God should welcome him in to the kingdom of God? Can he present on that day his own works, his own good deeds, his righteousness as the basis, as the defense for why he should be acceptable in the sight of God and why he should escape the wrath of God. Well, notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. Verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 64, 5 says, You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. Who remembers you in your ways? Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. God rejoices in those who do righteousness who remember the ways of God. But is that a fitting description of us in our natural state? No, it, we're the exact opposite is what he is saying. We are filthy, right? All of our righteousness are as filthy rags, filthy deeds, filthy garments before the very sight of God. Our putrid righteousness is this filthy garment. And if a man stands and pleads with Christ the judge on the basis of his own righteousness, he will not pass that bar of judgment. He will be condemned on that day. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. What about our heritage? Can we plead with Christ? Can we use as our defense that we come from a Christian family, that we have a Christian father, that we have a, a Christian grandfather, that we had many Christians in our heritage, in our family tree, and present that to God as the basis for why it is that we ought to be accepted on the day of judgment. Isn't this what the Jews were doing during the times of Christ? Saying we have Abraham as our father? And yet what did Christ say to them? Do not say that, he says. Do not say that we have Abraham as our father. For God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He says you need to bear the deeds, the fruits in keeping with repentance. That will not do on the day of judgment. What about our rituals? What about the various rituals that people go through? Well, I've been baptized into the church. I took communion at the church, right? I was sprinkled in this way at the church, right? I'm a member of the church. Many people put their hope in those types of things. They think that as long as they have made some profession, as long as they have undergone some ritual, that this guarantees them the very favor of God and that they can plead with Christ on that day on the basis of their association with the things of God, on the basis of undergoing some ritual, right? Having some clergyman pronounce some blessing over the top of them, wave his hands over them, and therefore they ought to be admitted into the kingdom of God on the basis of such things. All of this is worthless. It is vain. It is of no good and of no account 
on that day. And if we are trusting in these vain, worthless things as our defense, as our appeal to Christ on the day of judgment, we will not pass that day. We will not stand approved, but we will be condemned. So what is our only hope? What is the only defense that will be accepted on the day of Christ? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews 12, 24 says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Only the blood of Christ speaking on our behalf, pleading on our behalf, only his blood washing our sins away, covering our iniquities. This is the only way that we can have a standing before Christ on the day of judgment. We need his precious blood pleading on our behalf, declaring to the righteous judge that all of our sins, whether that be the guilt of original sin or the guilt of our actual sins, the guilt of our open sins or the guilt of our hidden sins, all of it has been paid by the blood of Christ. That Christ has died in our place. He has sacrificed his life on our behalf. He has taken our guilt, our shame, our punishment due to our sins and has completely satisfied God's righteous wrath against us on his cross. This is the only way that we can stand approved on that day. This is the only defense that will be accepted by God on the day of judgment. It is only the blood of Christ speaking on our behalf. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. 2.14 says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. There, the decree of debt against us. That is the debt of justice that we owe to the very law of God because of our sins, our many, many sins against God. And we owe a debt to the justice of God, and that debt is the penalty of sin, eternal damnation, eternal death in the lake of fire. And this is what hangs around every single man because of our sins. And what is the only way that that debt can be taken away? It is through the cross of Christ. He takes that certificate of our debt and he nails it to his cross, showing that that debt has been satisfied. It has been fully paid by the very death of Christ. The only way we can stand approved before God on that day is by having an advocate who speaks for us, who comes to our aid and makes a defense for us. And we have such an advocate, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have this advocate. And when that advocate is called by the court, the advocate comes and speaks on behalf of the accused. He comes and speaks on behalf of the one who is standing trial. He speaks for him. He speaks for his innocence. He speaks for his exoneration. He pleads for mercy for the one who has been accused. And we have an advocate who will come and speak for us on the day of judgment. And who is our advocate? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 tells us who our advocate is. And this is important because we see here then that Jesus is fulfilling multiple roles on the day of judgment. 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Here, 
he's writing to them for the purpose of their sanctification so that they might live godly and righteous lives. However, he knows that in this present life, even the greatest of Christians, that we will never be without sin. All of us will continue to sin even to the very end of our life. And when we sin, what is our hope? We have an advocate with the Father, and that advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. So here then, according to Hebrews chapter 4, he is our judge, but according to 1 John chapter 2, he is also our advocate. So our judge also serves as our advocate. And would it not be a sure and certain defense to have the judge who will decide our case, the one who's going to decide our fate, for that judge to rise up out of his judgment seat to come down and to take his stance next to the accused and to speak on his behalf, to declare his innocence before the bar of justice. Is it possible for a person to lose that case? Is it possible for them to be condemned in that case? It is impossible for that man to be condemned because the one who is advocating for him is the same one who will decide his fate. And will Christ the judge overrule and subvert Christ the advocate? Only if he contradicts himself. This is impossible. And this is why we have a sure and certain hope. Because the very judge that we will answer to is also the one who has died on our behalf. Is the one who is our mediator. He is our advocate. He is our high priest who is over the household of God. And this is why the scriptures can so confidently say in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is the one with whom we have to do. We don't have to do with the devil on the day of judgment. He is not our judge. We don't stand before him. He is the one who is the accuser of the brethren. But who is the advocate of the brethren? The advocate of the brethren is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the one that we will have to stand before. He is the one with whom we have to do on the day of judgment. And when we stand before Christ, we do not stand alone. He stands with us. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. We are covered by his blood. We are clothed with his righteousness. And this is the day for us to be prepared for that day. And how do we prepare ourselves? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and then persevering in that faith firm until the end. We cannot forsake Christ. We cannot deny our only Master and Lord. Is it not foolish to spit in the face of your judge? Is it not equally foolish to turn your back on your only advocate that you have with the Father? We must get an interest in Christ by faith and then cling fast to Christ firm until the end. For we will all stand before his judgment seat. And we are not hidden from his sight, but we are open and laid bare before him. So we ought to be true, sincere, honest Christians. Make a true profession of faith, not a false profession of faith, a true profession of faith from the heart, and then be steadfast and immovable in that profession. The righteous shall live by faith. Or as it says in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the point he is making here. The reality of judgment, the eyes of Christ that are a flame of fire, should produce in us the fear of the Lord that is necessary for our endurance in the faith and in the things of God. Not just when we first believe, but over the course of our Christian life, for the entirety of our stay here on earth. It says in 1 Peter 1.17, 1 Peter 1.17, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Is this not the time of our stay on earth? We're all still here. 
So how should we conduct ourselves? He says, with fear. Because we have an impartial judge that we must answer to and that we must stand before. So the certainty of judgment, the omniscience of Christ, these are great incentives to fear and to perseverance in our faith. And that's the main point that he's making here in this passage, and we ought to take it to heart. But it also should be pointed out that the reality of judgment and the reality of the omniscience of Christ, these are also for our hope, for our comfort, and for our encouragement in this present life. Right? For the true believer, for the sincere Christian, for the honest worshiper of God, he takes great comfort and hope knowing that Christ sees his heart, that Christ sees the faith that resides there, that Christ sees the grace of God at work in him, that Christ sees the love of God that is in his heart, and that Christ takes notice of it even when it is unseen by others, and that Christ will bring all of these good things forward on the day of judgment. It is not only sin that will be brought forward, but the good deeds of the righteous. All of these things will also be brought forward by Christ on the day of judgment. And even the smallest acts of love and devotion to God. Every bit of faith, even the smallest, weakest faith is seen by Christ. The secret longings of the heart those unseen and unheard meditations of the heart, the internal prayers of the saints offered in faith. Christ sees all of this, he hears all of these things, and he will bring them forward on the day of judgment. Everything that is hidden will be revealed, whether for good or for evil. And while in our present situation, the righteous have a mixture of good and evil in this life, Christ will not neglect the good. He will bring it to light just as assuredly as he will bring forward the evil. Matthew 10, 42 says, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And when will that reward be issued to him? On the day of judgment. These small insignificant things, giving a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, one of these children who are disciples of Christ, and you're giving it to them out of love for God and love for neighbor. It's coming out of true faith in Christ, something that seems so insignificant to the world. But who sees it? Christ sees it. And he will bring it forward, and he will reward it on the day of judgment, even when others do not see it. And in his saints, he sees the good that is there, even if it be ever so small. The first workings of grace in the heart of man. The faith that is in a man that is so small, right, so weak that is in him. The weakest and the most frail of believers, they are seen and known by Christ. He sees the grace of God that is at work in him, and he will nurture that saint. He will not cast him off, even if his faith is weak, and even if the grace of God is ever so small within him. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. Matthew 12:18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen... My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. There the battered reed he will not break. The smoldering wick, he will not put out. Even the weakest of Christians, even those that are most immature in the faith, they are known and they are loved by Christ. Christ sees the faith that is there. He sees the grace of God that is in them, and he will not extinguish it. 
even if that faith is like a barely smoldering wick. Christ sees it, he sees the good, and he will not extinguish his work in that man. And this is a great comfort for the people of God. Because there are times in our Christian life where our love, our zeal, our faith, they burn hot. We are inflamed, we have great love, we have great zeal, we have great faith. There are times when this will be true of us in our Christian life. But are there not other times when our love, our zeal, our faith is like a barely smoldering wick, like a bruised and battered reed? And whatever the condition, who sees it? Christ is the one who sees it. Even what is unseen by others, the faith, the love, the grace that resides in the heart, he takes notice of all of these things and he will not break the bruised reed. He will not extinguish even the smoldering wick, but he will nurture whatever grace of God is there and he will cause it to grow and to expand within our hearts and he will cherish and take care of us until the very end. John 21 John 21, notice that Peter has great comfort in knowing that Christ knows his heart. John 21, 15. John 21, 15 says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend to my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. It was a comfort to Peter to know that Christ knew his heart. Christ, you know. You know me. You know all things, he says. You know my heart. You know my love for you. Yes, my actions betrayed this love. Yes, I denied you three times. But you know what is in my heart. And you know that in my heart there is true love for you. You know all things. You know what is there. And this was a comfort and hope for him in this situation. And this is the way it is with Christ, with all of his children, all of his sheep, all of his people. He knows what is in our hearts. And he sees the faith. He sees the love. He sees the work of the Spirit. He sees the grace of God. And he will not extinguish these things, but he will cause them to grow and to flourish within us until the coming of Christ. And this ought to also serve as a warning to us to be very careful when we pass judgments on others. Now, there are times when we must pass judgment. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This is a part of the Christian faith. This is the part of the ministry and the work that needs to take place within the church of Jesus Christ. So there are times when we must pass judgment on one who has made a profession of faith in Christ, when his life is not measuring up to his profession, when his life is contradicting his profession. This is what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When there is the man who is there in the assembly, there amongst the church, who is committing immorality with his father's wife, an immorality that is not even known even among the Gentiles. And what does the Apostle Paul expect the church to do to that man? To pass a sentence of judgment against him and to punish him because of this grievous and scandalous sin. So there must be times when this happens. But we must be very patient and very careful and cautious when we are doing this. We cannot be quick to pass judgment Because we cannot see the way that Christ sees. We must have sufficient proof and sufficient evidence before we make such declarations. And yet, it is very, very easy for us 
to have a censorious spirit, to be ever fault-finding, to always be carping against our fellow brother, to be filled with evil suspicion, to always be pointing out the faults, the sins, the weaknesses, speculating about how evil and rotten everyone among us is, to be quick to pass judgment and quick to condemn. Many men, even many good Christian men, tend to be very severe with others and then very light on themselves. We tend to magnify the sins of other men and then mitigate and excuse our own. But really, it should be the opposite. We should maximize our own sins and we should be much more charitable toward others, not as severe with them. Are we quick to judge others? Are we quick to condemn? If the bruised reed is among us, will we care for it like Christ does? Or will we break the bruised reed? If the smoldering wick is among us, will we extinguish the smoldering wick? Or will we care for the smoldering wick like Christ does? These things ought not to be. Christ will not break the bruised reed. Christ will not extinguish the dimly smoldering wick. So neither should we. And this is why it says in Ephesians 4, 31, 31 and 32, let all bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is the way that we should be amongst one another because of who we are in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and because Christ is the judge with whom we have to do on the day of judgment. He is tender. He is gentle with his lambs. So we should also be gentle with his lambs as well. So let us then strive to love one another in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you give to us such great motivations Lord, to perseverance and to faithfulness. Lord, everything we need for life and godliness is found in your word. Everything we need, Lord, the knowledge necessary to have our sins forgiven, Lord, to be reconciled to you is there. And Lord, everything we need for our sanctification, for our continuation in the faith, Lord, to be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. Lord, all of it has been so graciously provided by you, Lord, given to us in your holy word. And Father, we pray that today your spirit would take the word that we have heard, that he would plant it, Lord, deeply within our hearts, and that he would cause it to bear much good fruit. Lord, the fruit of love, of faithfulness, of perseverance, Lord, of watchfulness, Lord, the fruit of mortification, of sin, Lord, that these good fruits, Lord, would be produced through the word that we've heard today. Lord, we pray that when you look upon us, Lord, that you would see us, and Lord, that you would find those who are pleasing in your sight. Lord, that you would see the very blood of Christ covering our sins. Lord, that you would see within us the work of the Spirit. Lord, the good deeds being produced by him in our life. And that, Lord, we would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, always remind us that our standing before you, Lord, is never based upon our good deeds. Lord, even as Christians... Lord, even with the Spirit, and Lord, even as those who are able, Lord, to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Yet, Lord, even the good fruit that we produce as a result of our salvation, Lord, even these things are not the basis of our standing before you, but always and only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, his blood spilt on our behalf. Lord, his life given to save us, Lord, his righteousness, clothing us and making us fit for the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you that we have such an advocate with you, Jesus Christ the righteous, one that you love, Lord, one that you hear and that you listen to, and that he is a mediator for us who speaks on our behalf, who intercedes, Lord, for his people. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation that you have bestowed, and Lord, we pray that you would continue to progress it and advance it, Lord, until the day of Christ. Lord, again, we ask that you ever keep on our mind, Lord, the reality of our coming death, Lord, and the reality of the coming judgment. 
so that we might be prepared, Lord, that we might live this life, Lord, not for our own pleasures, and Lord, certainly not for sin, but that we might live it for the life to come. So Lord, teach us in the inner man. Lord, teach us even in the very recesses of our hearts. Lord, remove and purify whatever sin is there. And Lord, cause us to press on until we enter into that kingdom. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.